Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. What a delight to be with you. And if you would, if you would open your copy of God's Word to Acts 21, Acts 21. Uh, If you uh, forgot your Bible today, it's page 876 in one of the Bibles behind the seats there, 876. Love to have you be there. Today is going to be a very special day. We have, uh, this might be called an International Sunday. We have a Jewish man uh, from Israel who uh, we're going to hear his story. We have an international person from Pittsburgh. (laughs) Pittsburgh's pretty international, isn't it? He's, and he's going to be telling his story. We've got just the, one of the neatest ladies, Francoise, who's from France originally. She's going to be telling her story. And then we have Ali, who's from Morocco, and he's going to be telling his story. And by the way, all of these have a common story. Story is basically, I was, but then Jesus showed up. Now I am altogether new. We're going to hear those stories. Let's begin with Paul's story Uh, in Acts 21. We've been tracking along with Paul. He's coming back from his third and uh, last international ministry trip, if you might say it that way. And he's in Jerusalem. He knew that when he was going to return to Jerusalem, that it was not going to be a love fest for him. Uh, And it sure enough turns out not to be that. Um, He's at the temple last Sunday in uh, the paragraph and the text right before verse 37. And and the whole area gets stirred up. He's in the temple, and then they point him out saying, this is the guy who's telling everyone everywhere about Jesus. How cool is that? To be called out for that would be an okay thing, by the way. To be called out for that would be an okay thing. But they, they're not happy about it, and so they drag Jesus out of the temple area. They're beat, I'm sorry, Paul. They're beating Paul up, pummeling him up for it. Uh, the uh, Roman soldiers there, Uh, in that area all rush out to basically protect his life and try and figure out what to do. And we're really at this point in verse 37 going into that where we're kind of asking the question, what's Paul going to do now? What's he going to do now? And it's really interesting. He does what I don't think would be in my top 10 list at the moment. I think right in the moment of that, if I had a chance to say something to these people who were dragging me out and were pummeling me over, I, I, I don't think, honestly, the idea of, hey, maybe this is a great opportunity to tell my story of how Jesus changed my life, I'm honestly not sure if that would be forefront on my mind. I have some other thoughts and words that might be in front of that right at the moment, and uh, which wouldn't be so loving and so wonderful, frankly. And I think that's why we can so learn from Paul here. Friends, here's the deal. If you know Christ is your story, you have a powerful tool in your hands with your story. God's word and your story combined together, preach it. That's what it is in it. It's about being a people that tell 
our story, and we're going to experience Paul's story first. So let's just dive in. Let's go at it. Let's pick up verse 37. I wonder what he's going to do. Here we go, verse 37. You with me? Awesome. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul says to the tribune, may I say something to you? By the way, a tribune, he's like the, the, the leader of a cohort. A cohort would be a thousand soldiers. So this is a significant individual. We, we find uh, in last week's text in verse 23 that he actually brings multiple centurions with him in this moment. All this is happening, lickety split, during the time of Pentecost. It's filled with people. There are hundreds of people that are dragging, and it's just last week, it's just chaos going on. The, these Roman soldiers come out, so there's a couple centurions at least. So there's at least 200 soldiers that are out. This is like a moment of just total uh, activity and yelling and confusion going on. And as Paul is brought into the barracks, uh, Paul says to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune of the court said, do you know Greek? And by the way, are you not that Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And the answer to that is no, he's not. That tells us something here, the cohort, this leader, who is a smart dude in the whole thing of it, he's, ba- he's trying to figure out what in the world is happening in this chaos here, and he's thinking Paul might be this other guy who is a menace uh, in, the, in the area. So Paul replies, verse 39, uh, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. I'm just going to tell you right there, when he speaks it in Greek to this guy who knows Greek, and he says he's from Tarsus, the the tribune's mind is all of a sudden picturing someone that he has respect for. He can speak in the language, and from the city of Tarsus at the time was well-known, well-populated, and and had a good reputation. So he's already perking his ears up. Uh, Paul replied, verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And I just go, <laughs> I, I would be like, permit me to please run from the people, right? I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. I wonder what he's going to say, verse 40. And when the Roman tribune had given Paul permission, likely thinking maybe this will help calm things down a little bit, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, which in that day would have been Aramaic, saying, chapter 22, verse 1. You got to hear the picture, friends. You got to see this. Chaos, chaos, chaos coming out of the temple. The, the, The soldiers come out and all that's taking place. He's trying to get it, and Paul steps out onto the steps in this, and he raises his hands out. Remember, he's just been pummeled up. So he's not like he just got out of the shower and all fresh and clean and for a meeting. I mean, he's just been pummeled. His hair's all crazy. Sweat is everywhere. He's probably bleeding all over. His clothes are probably ripped up. And he comes and he stands out. He puts his hands out. And and the crowd actually is like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And you got to hear what he says because he tells his story of what he was. But then when he met Jesus and now what he is now. Listen to his story. I am a Jew. So were they. I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated 
at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way. In other words, uh, Jews who were following Jesus. I persecuted them to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus. Why? To take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. Why? To be punished. I just want to pause right there, the story here, because I, I, I'm just enamored by what is Paul doing here? Answer. He's relating to them. In your story of what God has done in your life, begin with understanding your listener. Because friends, uh, you know what sin is. You know what uh, uh, being lost in life is. You know what uh, um, uh, being, having things of life be an idol before you and chasing after things. You know what it is to have a belief system. I came to Jesus and received Jesus as my Savior when I was just six years old, seven years old. I mean, I was a young man. I don't have like a whole career past. But I am still telling you I know what it was to be able to hear and know that I apparently, according to the Bible, am separated from God because of sin, and I knew sin. Yeah, my parents let me know I knew sin. And I knew what that is, even at that young age. And he's related to them. He's like, I get you. I get your thinking. I know what it is to have your identity built upon your nationality. Paul says, I know what it is to have your identity built upon being part of a people group or where you were born or where you were brought up or where you were educated. I get your belief system. I get it. I know it. I lived it. I'm just going to tell you, one of the things that has so been wonderful this past year as we've studied through the Gospel of Matthew and then through these latter chapter of Acts is the thing we see about Jesus and Paul is they knew how to relate with people. They were relatable people. They weren't stay away from people. In fact, Jesus ate with sinners. The Apostle Paul, he took the Gospel to the Gentiles, to the, to the dogs in many Jewish mindsets of the day. And Jesus didn't say, get away from me. He said, what? Come to me. Paul, after being ruthlessly beaten here, doesn't get up there and say, I would like to address you dirtbags. And I want to begin by saying, you are the lowlifes on the planet. He doesn't do that at all, friends. By the way, might I say, that is not relatable. That is not kind. Like, what do we, what, what's with that? In fact, Paul stands up and he says, I totally get you. And in fact, I get you so much if you understand what's happening here. He is essentially saying, I know what you're doing because I had done what you are doing right now to me. I used to be on your side. And I get it. I understand your belief system. I know where you're coming from. And I know why you're doing what you're doing. What is Paul doing? Paul is bridging the gap. He's not building a gap. Paul is bridging the gap. He's not, uh, a bridge, he's not breaking or, or extending the gap. Are you relatable with people? 
when they're having a hard time and they're in their own lostness and they're trying to figure life out? Or are you condemning to them? I would suggest be relatable to them. We're in a day and age where people love real. I'm just where I'm at. I'm just tired of the games. I'm tired of the playing. I'm tired of the church. I'm tired of the pastors who look perfect. I'm not. I'm just tired of all that, and people love real, right? Because we are real. Bridging the gap, not building a gap. Here he is telling his God story. I get it, I did it, I was that, but it doesn't end here. It keeps going, verse six. As I was on my way, by the way, to imprison and punish Jesus' followers, and drew near to Damascus, he's telling them, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, by the way, how cool is this? The idea in the original language is at noon the sun is uh, quite bright. And like if you look at it, it's hard to like burn your retinas out. But what he's, he's relating to, he says, you know, like the, soon as the sun is that bright, there was a sun right at, there was a light right at noon that was brighter than that. That's really cool. I wonder what that light was. Let's find out. Verse 7, and I fell to the ground. He was put face down by the way, by the one whom he despised. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? By the way, he completely understands that this is a divine encounter. And as we're going to see, by the way, he's not off on his own. He's not having a heat stroke moment, kind of all on his own and making this up. This isn't some internal experience thing. In fact, we're going to find out there are others around who I think the text is saying that they saw the light, they saw the encounter, and they heard it all. They didn't understand it all, but let's keep reading to find it out. Who, is, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Boy, right at that moment, I think just about if I were Paul in that moment, it's like I would feel like every cell in my body would be about ready to explode because here's what's happened. My entire belief system upon which I was functioning, zealously, fully committed to, thinking it was the right thing, thinking it was the thing that actually our creator wanted me to do, I all of a sudden found out that the way I was walking was wrong. And that's a hard thing to come upon. That's a really hard point to come upon to where you all of a sudden realize that your belief system is wrong. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I'm telling you, friend, there were witnesses there to this. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? Not what shall I feel, not what shall I experience. What should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed you to do. Remember, he's telling this to the crowds who hate his guts, verse 11. And since I, Paul, could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. Paul begins with, I relate, but then Paul moves into, then Jesus came. And Jesus showed up. I was walking this way, and then all of a sudden, wham, Jesus showed up. 
I was doing my thing, but then Jesus showed up with his thing. I was doing my way, but then Jesus stepped in with a new way. I was making it all about me, but then Jesus said, make it all about him. I was, but then Jesus. That's Paul's story right there. I was, but then Jesus. Let me ask, do you have a story like that? You're going to hear some more stories here in just a minute. But do you have a story like that? Where you're booking along in life and you think you kind of got your act together, whether you were six, seven-year-old or whether you're an adult along later in life, and all of a sudden you come to realize, whoa, hold on a second, hold the boat. Something's going on here. Jesus steps in and puts you face down. John 9, hey, blind man, what did Jesus do to you? How did he open your eyes? I don't know how he did it, but all I know is I was blind, but now I see. Hey, Paul, what happened with you? Well, I was walking my way, doing my thing, hanging out on the Damascus Road, uh, ready to go down to take people out who believed in Jesus. And then what happened? Jesus showed up and put me face down. And everything changed after that. Verse 12, and when I came into Damascus, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, That's a profound statement right there, by the way. I think it's quite clear, frankly, that Ananias knew who Paul, Saul, at the time was. Saul was the kind of guy that would take out Ananias people. And now all of a sudden he begins with brother. (laughs) That's cool. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. He's telling all these people. And Ananias said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. For you, Paul, will be a witness for him. To everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17, and when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, by the way, that's not referring, I don't think, to what took place in Acts 21, but a a while after his coming to Christ, I fell into a trance there and saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned, and I beat those who believed in you. He's telling the crowd this. And then the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed. I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed Stephen. And in that moment, he told me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. By the way, I think Paul wanted to continue his story on, but note the next verse. Up to this word, they listened to him. Up to what word? Up to the, to the Gentiles word. Up to that point, they listened. Then they raised their voice and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. We could say, well, that story didn't go over so well. But I could say this. We don't tell our story to get a certain result. We tell our story because that's what God has done and that's what God has glorified through. 
So what does Paul do when he comes back home? He shares his story. He shares his, I was, but then Jesus, and now because of Jesus, I am. That was Paul's apologetic. The word apologia is in the word. That's what Paul's apologetic was. Sometimes we think, well, we have to know what the Old Testament says and how it works in with all this, and we have to be really smart, and we have to have all this apologetics together, and that's fantastic. Grow in that, mature in that, pull it all together. But I'm telling you this, friend. Hey, what do you know about him? I only know this. I was blind, but now I see. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a story. Paul's was, I was religious, but then Jesus... I was morally educated, but then Jesus. I was religiously zealous, but then Jesus. I had a belief system without Jesus, but then Jesus showed up and put me face down. And now I am altogether different. Tell your story. Tell your story. The people who tell their story is a place where God is at work. So we're going to take some time for some stories of what God has done. Ed, we have Francois, we have Ali. Listen to their story. Listen to their story. Good morning. My name is Ed Matthews, and I was raised in a religious home in the western suburbs of Chicago. My family went to church each week, but at home things were not so great. My dad was a drunk. My parents got divorced when I was in eighth grade. I met my future wife when I was 16, and we got married in 1974. I was a mess back then involved with drugs and alcohol and all sorts of selfish behavior. But I thought marriage will fix me. Married people seem to have it all together. Two years later, my first daughter was born. And again, I thought, well, having a family, that'll help me grow up. (laughs) Wrong. Those external circumstances didn't change my heart those problems I had went with me into my new, new circumstances. Jackie and I never went to church, but I believed in God. I believed in Jesus, but understand this. Having a thought in your head of a belief is not a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior. Around this time, my little sister got saved at a Billy Graham crusade and gave me a Bible tract. Everything in that tract made perfect sense to me, and it was just what I needed to hear. I even said the magic prayer. The problem was the believing was in my head and not in my heart. I fooled myself for five years thinking I was born again. Let me repeat what I said a minute ago. Just believing something is not a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior. Next up, God gave me a job that moved me to our wilderness, a faraway place called Westerville, Ohio. You might laugh at that, but we knew nobody. God had us just where he wanted us. We had no families. I had no drinking buddies. We really were all alone. God was working on our hearts and drawing us to him. Before long, the Mormons started working on our, on our subdivision, and they talked about a lot of things that sounded good to me, like family and worship and morals. After talking to them for several weeks, we told them that geez, we just weren't sure. They told us to pray and that God would reveal the truth. So the first time in our marriage, we sat down and prayed together. God answered that prayer, and I canceled our next meeting. It was pretty cool that God used the Mormons to prepare our hearts. Four days later, four days after that happened, five days after we prayed, we were sitting out on the front porch waiting for Thursday night football to start. Two men from Westerville Bible Church just happened to stop by to share the good news of Christ to us. 
And when the Mormons first came to our house, we'd run in the back and turn the lights off, close the door, close the curtains and hide. This time we stood up and invited these strangers into our house. They asked me if I died, if I'd go to heaven. I, of course I will. I'm saved, right? Don't forget, I said that prayer. So I had, a, I had it good. Then they asked my wife the same question, and she said three words that rocked my world. I'm not sure. You know that minute in a Mission Impossible movie, they shoot a gun and a bullet comes out and it goes into super slow mode and you see the guy moving and all that? That's what happened to me. If you're not sure, maybe I'm not sure. What do you mean you're not sure? How could you not be sure? So I'm having a meltdown over there. Remember five years earlier when I read that tract and I got saved? I never talked to Jackie about Christ. I never even gave her the tract. I never took my family to church. Nothing changed in my life. I had my get-out-of-jail card. Jackie trusted Christ that night. Three weeks later, I believed in my heart, not in my head, and I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. This was 1982. I quit drinking, and now I was sure I had life all figured out. Everything's going to be smooth sailing. I'm a Christian now, right? What else could possibly go wrong? <clears throat> wrong again. About 15 years after my salvation experience, I fell into sin. That happens, people. And shame and guilt caused me to medicate with alcohol. And after many years of darkness and living a double life coming to church, I finally cried out to God, help me. God delivered me from the bondage of alcohol 1,955 days ago. I have other problems I'm still working on. Just ask my daughters. I'm slowly coming to the realization, keyword slowly, that no matter what I fix or change, no matter what hardship I overcome, it's not going to be smooth sailing. There's always something just around the next corner. Life is hard, but God. I love that when he says that in his word. But God gives me the resources I need to walk my journey. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, you will be with me. He may not take me out of the valley, but he's going to walk me through it. God is always by my side, even when my wife Jackie went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago following a 12-year battle with cancer. Here's a verse we memorized. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Thank you. does an extremely sinful 23-year-old French Roman Catholic young woman end up in Brownsburg, Indiana? <laughs> As a redeemed child of God, only by the grace and mercy of God. I came to South Florida on a vacation to visit my brother who had just opened a travel agency. There I met my future husband who was also visiting his family. He told me he was a minister. I just assumed it was a government position. <laughs> when I saw him celebrate mass, robed in all his religious vestments, I was shocked. I thought, this time, I am really in trouble with God. He was an Episcopal Anglican priest. We dated, fell in love, and were married. I became an Episcopal minister's wife. My husband was a deep thinker, studying the existentialists like Camus and Sartre, trying desperately to find the true meaning of life. By God's providential timing and placement, a new janitor was hired at the church. Clarence was a believer in Jesus. 
and he and my husband began dialoguing over the authority of the word of God. I became very jealous of the amount of time my husband spent reading the Bible at home. He kept telling me he was searching for the truth and believed he would find it in the Bible. My view of God at that time was that of a benevolent father who would wink at my sins and give me a free passage to heaven. I had made my own God and I had absolutely no interest in the Bible. After all, what was all this talk about becoming a Christian? I had been baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church, which I assume made me a Christian, then First Communion, then Confirmation. Shortly after I was married, the Bishop of Ohio made a special trip for a religious ceremony to receive me into the Episcopal Church. On top of that, I was a minister's wife. If I was not a Christian, what was I? And then God intervened in my life. Two couples from our church had become born-again Christians through the charismatic movement at the time. They wanted to have a Bible study at church, so of course we had to be there. That did not sell well with me. I showed to everybody that I did not want to be there by not opening the Bible placed right in front of me and puffing on my cigarettes. One of those couples whom I respected gave their testimony of how they had received Jesus as Savior and Lord. The Lord used them to make a crack in my very cold heart. At the end of one of those Bible studies, I was confronted with John 3.16. I was asked, do you believe you are a sinner? I definitely knew I was. I was told that I was separated from God because of my sin, but in his love and mercy, God made a way to him through Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But it was not enough for me to know all of that. I knew that Jesus had died for the sins of the whole world but I had never narrowed it down to me. I made John 3.16 my own. For God so loved Francoise that if Francoise believes, she will not perish, but have everlasting life. So simple, but the difference between life and death. All my sinful past was washed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for me. As promised, the Holy Spirit came in and began teaching me all the wonderful truths of the Word of God, and still is. I was blind, but now I could see and understand. I went to home and told my husband of what I just did. He had been searching the scriptures for months and was skeptical, saying it was too easy. But I kept telling him about John 3.16, because that's all I knew about the Bible. A few weeks later, Clarence had the joy of leading this priest with all his religious degrees to a saving knowledge of Christ. We separated from the Episcopal Church as my husband could no longer in good conscience perform infant baptism as the service says, now that this child is regenerated and grafted into the body of Christ. Then began the wonderful journey God had planned for us. 
After resigning from our church on Sunday morning, the Lord led us that evening to a Bible-believing church. We eventually were baptized and became members of that church. My husband returned to a sound doctrine seminary and then was ordained from that same church. We began growing in the Lord and serving him. But then, after 24 years of marriage, with a 16-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter, there was a bend in the road for me. The Lord took my husband home to heaven following a three-month battle with cancer. During that time, I totally relied on the word of God and trusted him fully to provide all of our needs. I experienced in a very vivid way the word of God miraculously lifting me above my circumstances. To say it was easy, no. But the Lord was always there, uplifting me with his righteous right hand. I was a widow for 10 years, when again by his providential timing, the Lord brought into my life a very godly man who lived in Brownsburg, Indiana. He just happened to be Marianne Strakowski's father and Jill Tynan's grandfather. We were married, and the Lord blessed me with a wonderful second family. After almost 10 years of marriage, the Lord called him home. That was 13 years ago. This is the God at work story of this very lost French young woman whom the Lord chose to rescue out of the miry clay and set her feet on the solid ground, which is Jesus Christ. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I called, knowing only one Bible verse, and he saved me. I truly believe if the Lord can save me, he can save anybody. Well, before I start, let me throw this warning first. The roughness of the accent was in the right order. <laughs> I think Pastor Doug really well orchestrated how the accent gonna decline. <laughs> My name is Ali. I was born in Morocco to a Muslim family. I grew up in the neighborhood of one of the oldest mosques in the country. It was over 1,000 years old. I attended the mosque at a very early age. I read the Quran and prayed and played tag with my friends under its quiet arches. Some imams helped us with our homework. When I was 14, I received a scholarship from the government to study Islam and Arabic. For four years, I learned from the best imams in the city. My mom had always pushed me to go to the mosque, hoping I would stay out of troubles. I enjoyed learning from those imams and discussing religious matters with my fellow students. Morocco is considered 99.9% Muslim country. Islam is everywhere. The king is the descendant of the prophet Muhammad. He heads all the religious celebrations. The national TV, the only TV in the country back then, started and adds up by 30 minutes of reading of the Quran. Islam is the only religion I knew. 
Islam teaches us that we are the best nation of the world because Allah has chosen us to be his ummah. Ummah means a nation. Islam is not just a religion. It controls everything in Muslims' lives and daily routines, from how to dress, what to eat, how to pray, and how to greet people. Everything people think, say, or do, Islam has a rule for it. Since I didn't know any other religion but Islam, I enjoyed being a Muslim. I never thought that something wrong about it. I always believed that Islam is from Allah and I obeyed the teaching of the Quran and the Hadith of the Prophet. The Hadith is the teaching and the deeds recorded by the Prophet's disciples. In 1997, I was studying in tourism school, just to open position. One day I was giving my testimony in Seattle and they said Tour tourism school, by the end the woman reached me out, she said, just to, to check if I get you right. You said you were in tourism school? So just my accent, she wrote, tourism as terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am, I was in tourism school in suicide bombers class. I survived. <laughs> I survived because I didn't attend the day when they experienced it. <laughs> so in uh, that class, a class and roommates confessed to me that he is a Christian. Since Christianity doesn't exist in Morocco, his confession came as a big shock to me. I thought that he lost the right path and I wanted to win him back to Islam. We debated almost every night for two years. We studied together. In the beginning of our debate, I realized that all I knew about Christianity is what Islam taught me about Christianity, that the Bible was corrupted and that Jesus was never crucified. I asked him to give me the Bible to check for myself. I, it took me two years to read the Bible from cover to cover. While reading the Bible, trying to find any flaws in it, I discovered that it has a lot, it has a lot of similarities with the Quran. Stories about Abraham, David, Solomon, and Joseph are mentioned in the Quran too. I started comparing the two books. The wind so opened my eyes on the flaws in the Quran. It was too hard for me to admit. Growing up as Muslim, I had never questioned the Quran. Finding out that Islam is not the right way was very devastating. Since my early days on earth, I was shaped to be a Muslim. Leaving Islam was like losing my identity. I lost trust in God. I became angry at God. In 1999, I joined the Special Forces Academy. It was a very tough training. The pain of the training was much easier than the pain of thinking of God and religion. For two years, I was under the shock that my family, my friends, and my country are following the wrong way. In June 2001, I graduated from the academy and I started working for the Secret Services of Morocco, protecting the king and his family. This year, three things happened that changed my life forever. The first one was 9-11 attacks. This event was like a wake-up moment for me. The moment I saw them on TV, I knew Islamic terrorism has something to do with it. This stirred up the anger towards God within me. I cried to God that night asking for answers. 
the second event. Three days after 9-11, I was securing an area for the king's visit. I checked a dumpster nearby to make sure it was empty as they must be empty for security reasons. I found five books inside. They were Christian books written in Arabic and Spanish. One titled More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. That night I asked God if he, he is trying to tell me something. Then I heard a voice telling me to open my Bible. I did. When I started reading, it was the story when John the Baptist was killed. The voice again told me that he sees the killing of John the Baptist and the killing of the victims of 9-11 in a very different way than, I, than how I saw them. The third event. A few months later, my appendix exploded. After the surgery, I opened my eyes in the military hospital in Rabat, the capital of Morocco, between life and death. I was in pain, but what was more painful is an unanswered question. If I die today, what is my destiny? I felt that I left the hospital with one mission in mind, finding who God really is. For a year, I begged God to reveal himself to me. Almost every night, I hear a voice telling me that Jesus is the right way. In September 2002, I surrounded my life to Jesus. I was baptized in December the same year. God kept showing me through several events that I chose the right way. But that's why I wanted to share the good news with my family and friends. I knew that my good news will be a very bad news for them. I found myself between two decisions, sharing the news with them and put myself at risk or keep it to myself and stay safe. It didn't take long for them to notice the change in my life. They asked me many times about what changed me. It was easy to share with them when they asked. Unfortunately, sharing with my friends and family cost me a lot. In 2004, the Secret Services knew about my conversion. I was sentenced in the martial court for with six months of prison. I spent only six weeks. From protecting kings and presidents, I found myself in the same cell with four murderers, drug dealers, and thieves. I was rejected by my family and friends. I lost my job and my house. It was one of the toughest times of my life. Four years later, I became the pastor of Rabat House Church. I and Karima, my wife, hosted the underground church in our apartment and led several leadership training schools for new believers. Karima worked for the Bible Society for 10 years in Morocco under a different name, of course. Not her name, the business name. No one would expect that Karima would smuggle Bibles into the country. She did worse than that. <laughs> Our <laughs> she, she looks so innocent. <laughs> she's not. <laughs> I'm saying that because she's not here. Our activities generated too much trouble for us. Karima had been investigated by the secret police many times. They visited her office to investigate her. Our pictures and our kids' pictures were posted on social media by fundamentalist Muslims groups, giving details about our activities and addresses. In 2013, we had to flee our country. 
after I, information I give to the U.S. Secret, Secretary of State about persecution in our country and uh, what we suffered from in our country went public on WikiLeaks. As a former Secret Service agent, I'm not to deal with any foreign government. Following Christ caused us to lose families, friends, homes, and country. We lost the world we knew for many years. If we knew before choosing to follow Christ that this would happen to us, would we do it again? Yes, we would. Maybe you didn't know this, but the nations are here. And our God, the God of the nations, and I don't know what your background is or what your story is, but do you have a story about the God of the nations grabbing a hold of your life, forgiving you your sin, and redeeming you into life unto him? I was. But then Jesus, and now because of Jesus, we are. Lord, stories preach of what you have done and of who you are. God, I pray for anyone in this room this morning or maybe there in a place where hearing these stories of Paul, of Ed, Francoise, and Ali, Maybe them hearing their stories is, is caused within them a stirring to wonder, do they really have a story? More than a head knowledge, like Ed's story talked about. God, a saving knowledge of who you are, and God, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray that they would ask. I pray they'd come up after the service and talk with someone, talk someone near around them. Because God, you are the one who redeems lives. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Father, I pray for those who know you as their Savior. That God, we would have our story ready at any time. Whether it's a 20-minute story like Paul's, whether it's a five-minute story like Ed's, whether it's a seven-minute story like Francoise's, whether it's a 10-minute story like Ali. God, it is there. It is ready to be used. It is to be put on the table. And even in the moments when we might think it is the last thing to do, maybe it should be the first thing we do. We proclaim you in Christ's name. Amen.